Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon. On today's show, we look at two Christmas traditions. First, we visit a very unique house just a few minutes from Fordham's Rose Hill campus that has some special decorations. Then I talk with Professor Kenneth Ames, the author of a book and art exhibit that examines how Christmas cards are connected to our history and culture. That's ahead on today's Fordham Conversations. A few strings of light and an inflatable Santa are enough for some people when it comes to holiday decorations, but not for the Garabedian family of the Bronx. Their over-the-top Christmas displays have been a traffic-snarling must-see for nearly four decades. And as WFUV's George Bodarkey reports, traditional is definitely not the right word for this holiday attraction. The first giveaway might be the music the Garabedians play through speakers outside their home. Instead of a Christmas carol, you're more likely to hear a hit single from a singer like Engelbert Humperdinck. A long line of cars slowly cruise past the family's two-story house in this ordinarily quiet residential neighborhood. And while you will find Dasher, Dancer, and the rest of Santa's reindeer crew up on the second-story deck, the Garabedian's massive holiday display also features life-size figures of other notables, generally not associated with Christmas. Joan Collins, Elizabeth Taylor, Mal Monroe, Nicole Kidman, there's Cher, there's Dinah Ross, there's Michael Jackson. That's Gary Garabedian. His mom started the tradition of decorating the house in 1973 as a way to give back to the community. Gary was nine at the time. He says it started off small with just a few dolls. Now they have more than 150 mannequins. Many are robotic. Some simply move their heads or hands. Others play instruments. Some are dancing the walls. The Beauty and the Beast is doing the whole walls. We have chandeliers that are spinning. There's even a Liberace-like mannequin playing a realistic-looking Steinway piano. The Garabedians make the fiberglass mannequins themselves. The family's in the dressmaking business, so they also outfit the mannequins in fashions you might see on the red carpet. It's so over the top. It's uh, kind of like it's so bad it's good. Uh, I, I think it's just great. Paul Laurie traveled from Bell Harbor, Queens, about a 40-minute drive, to take in the display's elaborateness. This is awesome. Look at the colors. Look at the beating. Look at all of the sparkles. This is, I mean, I don't even want to go home. Look at that. Look at the shoes. Oh, my goodness. Look at the lace. Oh, my goodness. This is just fabulous. Fabulous. Connie Hardy lives on the other side of the Bronx. She came to see the house with her family and best friend. She says it makes her feel like a kid again. It's just uh, phenomenal. I, I could do this every day. Come and see this every day. Everything that you imagine to life, you know? And it's just so great. This was Hardy's first time here, but for a lot of people, it's a holiday tradition. Damaris Rios has been coming for 20 years. I love this house. It's awesome. Every year is different. Alvin and the Chipmunks made their debut this year. Next year, Elvis will take the stage for the first time. Gary Garabedian says the display took on a celebrity theme a few years ago. It's a celebration. When somebody's born a birthday, it's a celebration. So Christmas is a birthday. All the movie stars come together to celebrate Christ's birth. 
A giant nativity scene overlooks the entire display. Gary says more than 50 500-watt halogen spotlights light up the whole thing. Their electricity bill runs about $2,000 for the season. But Gary says it's worth it because of the smiles it puts on people's faces. As for the neighbors annoyed by all of the traffic on their block, Gary says he encourages them to just bear with it. That was WFUV's George Bodarki reporting. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Here is a thought. I'm, I'm not about to do it now, but maybe at some point in books about American culture, American material culture, you'll find Christmas cards or other kinds of greeting cards popping up a little bit more often as cultural evidence. There's a new art exhibit and book coming out that examines the images on historic American Christmas cards and how they relate to American culture. Professor Kenneth Ames is the author of American Christmas Cards, 1900 to 1960. He's also the organizer of an exhibition of the same name on view at the Bard Graduate Center through the end of the year. Good morning, Ken. Good morning. So what prompted this project? Well, it is, in a sense, we did it backwards. Although what everyone sees is, is Christmas cards, the idea behind it actually was to give students an opportunity to deal with a category of things, American things, American material culture, which had not been studied very much in the academy. And so Christmas cards seemed as, as good a topic as any, but our, the imp impetus was actually pedagogical. That's kind of an old-time and, and uh, pompous word, but the idea was to give students a chance for direct confrontation with, in this case, a lot of things, from the American past, and it challenged them to figure out what in the world do we do with these things and what in the world do we say about these things. Could you take me through the process of what you and the other project organizers, who were students, correct? Yes. Uh, take me through the process of what you had to do. Well, it, this, this does have a, a bit of a deep history because once upon a time in, in circumstances that, that don't, <laughs> don't bear recording, I stumbled upon... Uh, a box full of Christmas cards, all from about 1910. And I'd never looked at these things before, and I thought they were just wonderful things. They, they had designs that were kind of unfamiliar to me, and they had wonderful color. And in, in, a, in a sort of passive way, I accumulated these things. And after a while, without, without a lot of effort, without spending much money, I had this cache of five or 6,000 cards. Ooh. And well, Right, that, that's a lot. And uh, it just kind of was in the back of my mind that we could do something with these uh, in, a, in a graduate class. Now, the next step is actually that at the Bard Graduate Center, uh, management there came up with the idea of having a small gallery in which we can do sort of experimental exhibitions that are derived from courses. We would run a class, and then from the class, mine actually was two semesters, we would come up with uh, an exhibition. But I think I started the class with uh, a reading list, but before anybody read anything, we just kind of covered the table with 
hundreds and hundreds of cards and let them just sort of immerse themselves in them, see what they look like, see what they're about, and begin the process of thinking about how to, how to wrestle these things into some kind of intellectual order and gain some kind of control over this extraordinary volume of things. So in, in, in a sense, the project replicated what people did in the 18th and the 19th centuries when you know the, the world was uh, studied and sorted and classified and you know, the biological world, the geological world, the art, art historical world, all these different bits of, of reality were sorted and classified by people who gave them a new kind of attention. So what we were doing is, is looking at Christmas cards, and here they all are. What is going on here? What are the patterns? How might we classify these things? And so they began the, began the process. And it was a dialectic. We would read, and the readings would or would not illuminate the cards, and we'd look at the cards, and it was a back-and-forth kind of thing. And it took a long while to figure out uh, what to do, because people had some very basic questions, like, why Christmas cards? It's kind of fundamental right. question. And then it backs up into why Christmas. So we, we get into some some kind of fundamental issues here. We had a lot of discussion, a lot of reading, and uh, lively encounters with the goods and with each other. Did you find that people took the Christmas cards for granted? Um, Meaning that you have them displayed. People are used to seeing Christmas cards every year. You put them on your mantle or somewhere, and you know, and then you kind of dump them after the new year, or either in your case, you save them and they go on a box in an attic, and nobody sees them again for a while. Right, so, right. do you find that people, you know, your students specifically, struggling with trying to find the connection between the Christmas cards as culturally specific artifacts? That that that's a good question. And, and uh, I think one of the reasons people don't look at Christmas cards because is because they've been so common, and once their day is over, they're apparently extinct and can get thrown away. But the footnote to that statement, of course, is clearly they don't get thrown away. Otherwise, how would I come up with 6,000 <laughs> cards in quick order? Right. So the, the fact that they're saved or hoarded or kept or whatever the word is does suggest some kind of residual meaning here. But... I arbitrarily just decided we're, we're going to stop at 1960. Part of that was because of the concentration of cards that I had, and part of that was because the only person in the class born before 1960 was me. <laughs> and, and so this was all foreign terrain to them, you know. This is a distant American past. These students are all born in 1980 or something like that or, or after. And so this, this was the ancient of days. And so it was, it was and it, you know, the, the cards had that sense of surprise and difference that all things from the past, or most things from the past, have. So it, it, even if it's just a prosaic Christmas card, it's 1926, and they never looked at 1926 cards before, and they're different. So it's the differentness of something that is itself commonplace that was kind of a lure, I think, in, into, the, into the project. I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV. Today I'm talking with author and professor Kenneth Ames about his latest book and exhibit called American Christmas Cards, 1900 to 1960. In both, he examines the imagery on historic American Christmas cards and how they relate to American culture. Did you only examine the imagery on the cards, or did you also look at the messages in the cards? 
we looked at the messages in the cards. Uh, we looked at signatures, but we realized our time frame, our schedule, really limited what we could do. If you take the front of most Christmas cards, they're mostly image, and then they've got some words. They're not mostly words, and then they've got some image, though it varies over time. Cards from 1915, 1920 are mostly words, but the words are just somebody's name, and then a little a little picture. But cards uh, before that and cards after that are mostly image. So you're studying the images on the cards. Right. You have them all spread out, and your students are trying to categorize them? Right. Well, we're trying to figure out what, what can we do, and one of the things we can do is to look and see what the concentrations are, you know, what is on Christmas cards after all, and it turns out to be many different things. You know, there we've got we've got uh, images of people in in carriages, coaches being pulled across the countryside. We've got candles. We've got poinsettias. Sometimes we've got candles and poinsettias together. Sometimes we've got candles and poinsettias and coaches together, but often they're separate. We've got uh, the three kings wandering across a, a landscape or simply across the cards, you know, across the paper field uh, in front of us. We have photographs of people. We have images of places like Florida or California. We've got cards that are meant to be funny. We've got cards that are meant to be cute and kind of cloying. And we've got another 15 or so other clusters of really quite specific imagery, some of it really quite time-linked. For a while in the 20s and 30s, we've got ships. We don't have much before that. We don't have much after that. But we've got ships. Furthermore, they're not contemporary ships. They're sailing craft. They're sailing craft actually of the 17th century and the early 18th century. Well, that's kind of curious, isn't it? But I was going to say, what does the sailing have to do with Christmas? Well, that's a very good question. What do poinsettias have to do with Christmas? Mm. Uh, you know, what, what do candles have to do what are what are candles all about anyway? You know, it all gets kind of kind of complex, and so we see there there are images that sort of suggest uh, certain what affective states. They suggest certain kinds of associations, but very few cards explain what ships are about. And when they seem to, uh, it's not really convincing. Like a, a, a shipload of good, good wishes. I, I don't think they're telling a full story. I, I think there's something else embedded in these ship images and not just a ship law of, of good wishes. That, that somehow seems to frighten the message, and I think is somehow rather more, rather more profound or something, you know. So, so uh, Professor Ames, what made the card a Christmas card then, especially since some of the imagery on some of the cards didn't have traditional themes, like you said, these sailboats. So what made a Christmas card a Christmas card or makes okay. one? <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, season greetings, holiday greetings, whatever it says. It has it has a very specific salutation that identifies it. So you didn't only use Christmas cards in terms of the traditional term of Christ's birthday Christmas cards. You used holiday holiday cards and New Year's cards also in this survey. No, they're they're all, they're all Christmas cards. Oh, okay. But, but they don't always say Christmas. Some do say season greetings, and they've said that for a very very long time. Some do refer to holidays generic. It's, it's never simply been, it's never simply been Merry Christmas. There's always been lots of variations on the theme, and for the most part, and this is what 
surprise the students on the first day. For the most part, Christian references do not dominate. Really? Most Christian, most, most Christmas cards in the United States are not explicitly Christian or, for that matter, religious at all. Well, they're not now. Were they back in the 1900s when you started your uh, survey? No. No? No. So what were some of the more popular Christmas card designs over the years? Uh, let's see. Well, the most common, most common is candles. Do we know why? I, I don't know why. <laughs> candles, can, candles, one candle, two candles, three candles, up to five. So what do you think this says about the culture of the time period? Well, it, it says different things at, at different times uh, because the nature of cards changes. I mean, there, what, what are some things we can see from the cards? Well, one thing we can see is, is money. Now, you can, you can see when people have spent money, but we can't always infer when they haven't spent money that they don't have it, right? Somebody with a lot of money can decide to send an inexpensive card. But somebody without a lot of money cannot decide to spend an expensive card or is not likely to. And so we can see money in these cards, and that's kind of intriguing. Uh, and that changes over time because we can also see the depression in these cards. Because uh, oh, wait, I'm cards, sorry, I have to back you up. What do you mean you can see money in the cards by the cost or the amount of how much the card costs? You can you, you can tell an expensive card just as you can tell an expensive house when you drive by on the on the highway. You know, you can because it has around. all the frills and all the sure. might have glitter or something on it. Right. You know, just go through a cemetery. You can tell who had money and who didn't just by the by the nature of the monument. Well, cards are the same way. They're expensive cards, and you can tell them by the size. Uh, by the nature of the design, by the kind of materials that are used, whether it, you know, some cards are clearly uh, specially commissioned by people with money, and they had 200 made to send off, something like that, and others are, you know, they came in a box, and they were very inexpensive, and you can, you can tell that. And so you can see, you can see, you know, the Roaring Twenties with a lot of money, and you can see the Great Depression, where a lot of cards are clearly inexpensive. They don't use much of anything, not a lot of paper, not a lot of ink, they're not very big, and so forth. Though they're often still wonderfully designed, so we we can we can see that going on. So even uh, when there was less money to be had because of economic times in the twenties, people still sent Christmas cards. Oh, they did. Yeah, there there is an argument that actually in the thirties in the depression, people sent more Christmas cards, but they they uh, exchanged fewer gifts. So what did you see in terms of the diversity on the cards? Well, one thing this gets back to your question earlier: what kind of names are on the cards? And you can you can watch uh, changing names when cards are signed. You also learn a lot when you get cards with envelopes, because then you get you get full names and addresses, and that's kind of intriguing. And so you see different ethnicities becoming part of the American mix and joining into what the American tradition of Christmas card exchange. Uh, How did that change, or did it change? the imagery on the cards, or it was just the, by the names that you could tell that there was a, a difference uh, in this diversity? You know, Christmas is a complicated uh, holiday because of its, its, its many origins. But as, as it turned out, this, this surprised me, but uh, two of the students who took the first semester of the course were from Jewish Theological Seminary. And although their initial interest was in using the study of Christmas cards as a model to then study Jewish New Year cards. They decided after a while they were much more interested in Jewish centers and recipients of Christmas cards. 
And so one of the things that, that they were able to track a little bit, because who knows from names what anybody is, but when there, one can surmise. And occasionally you can, you can find the people. You can Google them, you, you know. Mm-hmm. And we, we did that occasionally. But they got interested in, in Jews sending Christmas cards as part of the process of Americanization. And so we had a fair number where it was, you know, likely that this was sent by a, a Jewish person. There are some cases where it was unequivocally the case. We, we knew who this person was. We knew where they sent this card. And that was kind of an interesting process to, to watch. These tend to say season, season's greetings or uh, happy holidays, but they're, they're part of uh, people's ambition to join and participate in the larger American culture. Now, was this Jewish um, card givers giving their cards to uh, non-Jewish friends, or was it, were Jewish people giving the Merry Christmas cards to their other Jewish friends and not really thinking about the um, religious aspect to the card? I think some of both. Hmm. So how did, for example, the depiction of maybe Santa Claus change over the years? Santa Claus begins, Santa Claus begins to appear... Uh, commonly around uh, 1900, 1910. And the cards that are predominant in this country, in that era, are actually printed in German-speaking countries. And so Santa Claus is pretty clearly linked to uh, various European figures that are antecedents to or, you know, uh, ancestors of or relatives of the the American Santa Claus, and so he pops up wearing different color clothing, green sometimes, brown sometimes. You know, it's Father Christmas or Père Noël or something like that. Uh, although there are some others at the same time that are clearly derived from the image created by a German-born New York City illustrator Thomas Nast who is creating imagery for Harpers in the 1860s. And so that's, that's the American Santa Claus, who pops up sometimes, but also there are all these European contenders. And it kinda, they kind of get washed out after a while, and we get the, the familiar Santa Claus. For a lot of the cards, Santa doesn't do anything by the 50s. It's either, it, it gets kind of uh, trite, I guess, mm-hmm. and silly and lean and cute, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of substance to it. It's just a, a, a light-hearted reference to this figure. Although there are some ironic Santa images sent by adults to adults, where Santa does all kinds of things that children don't know about and perhaps shouldn't. So anyway. So did you find that that says more about the person sending the card or more about the culture, the fact that this Santa seems to have disappeared in the 50s? Well, he doesn't disappear. It just becomes uninteresting. It just becomes commonplace, just another, just another thing. But I, I think the general process to what, cutification, you know, we've got uh, Little Drummer Boy, and that's kind of cute. We've got Rudolph, and that's kind of cute. And we've got Gene Autry, Here Comes Santa Claus. It's all, it's all, it's all kind of cute. And some of the 19th century songs, uh, they're, they're, they're more formal or they're sterner or they seem more geared at adults. So I guess one of the shifts is, you know, the American culture drifting off toward uh, juvenilization, which some people insist continues today.
Professor Ames, did the various wars change the images that we saw on Christmas cards? To a slight degree, but by and large, no. Hmm. Um, and it, there, there are you, you do see wartime cards, and of course they're too great, by which I mean large, wars here, World War I, which is brief for Americans. You get an occasional card from 1918, which is kind of sometimes a lamentation for loss. And it's not clear to me, looking at those, whether they are about uh, war dead or whether they're about the uh, influenza pandemic of that same year. For the Second World War, which lasts for a long time, uh, there's a change in the color of cards. And even if the imagery is a standard uh, poinsettia or some candles or uh, whatever else it might be, they drift in the direction of red, white, and blue. And they also sometimes have gratuitous five-point stars dropped into the image. What were the five-point stars? What did well, they... they're derived from the American flag. Oh. But that's, but that's about an explicit uh, war cards some people consider are in, in poor taste. Why? I think they just they want, they want to separate these two very, very different activities. What's, what's the right word? These two different, different facets of human society. Uh, the whole notion of Christmas is one of benevolence, and war is malevolence. I mean, they're, they're, they're polar opposites and commingling. First World War, there were some. Second World War, um, much, many fewer. What was your ultimate goal of studying Christmas cards or Christmas cards imagery and connecting it with culture? I think trying, trying to say a little something suggestive, which I mean the positive sense, a, a little bit that might prompt people to look at these things more closely, more carefully, more thoughtfully, to move them out of that you know, out, out of the closet or out of the trash heap or whatever you suggested early on, out of that category of goods we, we see once and forget into something that are worth contemplating and examining and thinking about. And what did you come up with? <laughs> I think that's where, that's where we left it. What we came up with is to see whether any, anybody pays any attention to these things after us. And if nobody does, we'll know, well, we were wrong, nobody cares. But uh, but we'll see. Yeah. But you care. Well, well I, I I do, but I, I'm I, I march beside the mainstream rather than in it. So I'm not I'm not a good a good measure of of concern for these things. But the fact that I had, you know, ten or twelve students that, uh, and you know, I never asked them point blank why they were interested in this, and I should have. But the fact that they turned out suggests something to me. So. Professor Ames, were there any Christmas card? imageries that you considered unusual? Well, aside, aside from ships, which were kind of a, kind of a surprise, uh, not necessarily unusual, but intriguing, the cards that had a regional bias. And we concentrated on Florida and California. And those are those kind of interesting because they, they relate to, you know, how, how, do, how do people in, in warm parts... Uh, engage in a holiday, which is for most people in America, at least up until the 1940s or 50s, is associated with uh, cold parts of the country and with, with basically it's associated with winter. 
there's not a lot of winter down there in Fort Lauderdale. So right. You know so, how do how do how do people deal with this? And they send cards with oranges and so forth. And the other category that was fascinating were business cards, because companies then, and I think some companies now, put a lot of money and thought into what they sent out. And they, they were all over the place. Some were absolutely conventional, you know, cheap box of cards, just stamp the company name inside, somebody's supermarket or somebody's laundry. But others, they've been designed in-house, or they paid to have cop design done, and they run off expensively, and they're, they're kind of intriguing. Some are... Uh, Original prints, for example, probably run in, in short runs. Uh, some are unchristmassy. Some combine advertising and Christmas to, you know, promote the company's goods. They're really pretty diverse, but on average, they're more diverse, and I think generally of better production and design quality than mainstream cards. So it's kind of interesting to see, you know, this marriage of Christmas cards and American commerce. Not surprising, just intriguing. So, Professor Ames, what do you think about the seemingly developing tradition of sending electronic Christmas cards via email instead of through the Postal Service? I, it's different. And what happens with that behavior, I guess, remains to be seen. It, it's, it's not the same. What's, you know, some people read on Kindle and some people prefer a book. I don't know. I think there's something about being able to touch a thing. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. My thanks to author and professor Kenneth Ames. His latest book and exhibit is called American Christmas Cards, 1900 to 1960. The book is published by the Bard Graduate Center and distributed through Yale Press. The exhibit runs through December 31st at the Bard Graduate Center in Manhattan. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscaper next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.